0: I hope you've enjoyed. uh, These elders have been praying. I feel like it's refreshing. And um, uh, they're giving thought and time and attention to both praying for you, but also modeling prayer. And uh, I am very thankful to speak after uh, these men have prayed. Particularly when you come to a, a scripture like today. So C.S. Lewis, the great writer and philosopher and teacher and a number of other tasks he did and roles he played of um, the you know, previous, died in, the, in the, um, 1961, British man, he, um, he was accused of not liking the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, an author uh, accused him of that. And so he wrote a rejoinder against this um, man by the name of... Um, Dr. Normal Pittenger, and here's what he wrote in, as a response to being accused of not caring for the Sermon on the Mount. He said, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying it, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face with a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read these passages with tranquil pleasure? I mean, the sermon of the man, the Sermon on the Mount, is demanding. It's, and you're going to see that today. I mean, it's going to be a challenging passage. You know, I, I, this is the sixth contrast that we have read in chapter five. You know how it's been set up. You've heard it said, but I say to you. So in this method of teaching, Jesus is raising up the uh, false teaching of the Pharisees, and he's bringing a truer, deeper teaching of a greater righteousness. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. And so he's teaching us a greater righteousness. And this sixth contrast, I think, tops them all in terms of a righteousness. I think it's the most, probably one of the most difficult commands we have. Uh, it's it's absolutely otherworldly. If you think turning the other cheek was, was tough, this is that was child's play compared to this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, before you quickly, before we excuse ourselves and make up reasons why this doesn't mean what I'm going to just say that it means. Um, I I would ask you to listen for three things today. Jesus is going to clarify for us what it means to really love our enemies. He's going to clarify it. He's going to bring kind of this this clear vision of what he means. It's it's an intimidating one, but it will be clear. Then he's going to give us reasons for why we ought to do this. He provides reasons for us, and then he's going to show us ways in which we can love our enemy. He's going to show us ways that we're able to do it. What I'm going to ask you to do is just open your heart to the Word of God. That Each one of us here has people in our life that we're struggling with, we're angry about, we have animosity towards, there's conflict, there's rupture in relationships, and I'm going to ask you to open your heart to God's Word and allow God's Spirit to move you to a place of believing, yes, I can love those with whom I have enmity with. So turn with me to Matthew 5, and we'll read 43 to 48. 43 to 48. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons <clears throat> of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain, Jesus is going to clarify us what it means to love with a perfect love, loving your enemies. So you see him take issue with this worldly love of the Pharisees. And and he's going to bring around a divine love. This is what it means to love perfectly, to love with a divine love. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, love your neighbor, we know that's in the Bible. I mean, that, that's a clear scripture in the Bible. In fact, it comes from Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, by the way, is a chapter where God is instructing the congregation of Israel, and he's teaching them how to behave to their parents and to their neighbors. And so it's in this bigger instruction that God gives that he's going to be teaching us. And it says in Leviticus 19:18, 18, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, so what's Jesus taking issue with? Well, there's two problems that the Pharisees had. Number one is an omission, an omission, and one is an addition. So the two problems Jesus is going to correct. One is an omission. Clearly, you heard me say to love your neighbor as yourself, but you didn't see that when Jesus was repeating the teaching of the Pharisees. Why? Well, the Pharisees dropped as yourself. So in other words, he just said, love your neighbor. And Jesus says, no, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a critical Omission. Because to drop as yourself removes the standard by which I need to love another person. In other words, if you drop yourself, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, I can love them in a manner that I decide. I can determine how I love them. I can discriminate over the quality of love that I extend to somebody. But if I say, love your neighbor as yourself, well, I know how I want to be loved. And that becomes the standard by which I love others. But they dropped it, they made it easier. It's easier to fulfill. But not just that, they made an addition. You see that hate your enemy. Charles Spurgeon called this little addition a parasitic growth on the word of God. You can scour the Old Testament. You can pour over the New Testament. You'll never find it. It's not the Bible. To hate your enemy. So the question is, well, why would they have added it? I mean, what would give them the right to just add that? Well, a restricted view of neighbor. In other words, if I just look at my neighbor as just a fellow Jew, then that gives me the freedom to not have to love those who aren't like me. I can ignore them. I, I can disagree with them. I can even hate them if circumstances dictate. They had a terrible understanding of what separation was. They, you know, Think about the history of the Bible. God calls Abraham out of Ur, and he decides to make a people, Israel, for himself. They weren't chosen because they were a better people. They weren't chosen because they were a holier people. They were chosen to display God's grace. And yet they became superior. They became arrogant. And were God's people, and they're not. We don't have to love them. We just have to love God's people. Again, making it easier to fulfill. Now, I do realize, and those of you who have read the Old Testament, there is some strong language to the nations of Canaan. I mean, the ladies are going through Joshua right now. Joshua, it's like God coming with a bulldozer through the land. And there's some strong language against the other nations. Or if you read the imprecatory Psalms, those Psalms where David seems to just bring down the wrath of God upon his enemies. But I want you to remember that Joshua and some of the language against the nations and these imprecatory Psalms, this is God's judicial response to evil and adultery and idolatry. So this is God bringing a holy judgment against the people. It's not to be meted out by us against one another. It's not a personal revenge. It's not a a personal attitude. But the language that you see in the Old Testament is God bringing about a judgment on the people. So we're not called. So these Pharisees misinterpreted it. They took their separation, which was an act of grace, and they made it an act of position and privilege. And here's the sad thing they didn't read the rest of the scriptures. I read to you from Leviticus 19.18. Well, if you just go to the end of the chapter, here's what it says in Leviticus 19.34. The stranger who lives with you shall be to you a native, and you shall love him as yourself. In other words, they were instructed to love the stranger and the alien. Not only that, in, in Exodus 23, we read, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you has fallen down under its load, don't leave it there. Be sure to to help them. I mean, the instructions were clear. Even with your enemy, you're to love them. So so Jesus is is condemning this attitude. You've seen this, though. Do you remember in 9-11 when the towers came down and they showed some pictures of some cities in the Middle East? They were cheering when innocent people were dying. It's a terrible scene, absolute terrible scene. But that's the teaching that I'm speaking about here. Love your enemy or love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. It's good to hate your enemy and to enjoy their downfall. Jesus condemns this. We do not exercise a discriminating love. That's what they were doing. It's a selective love. I love the type, I love the people that are like me and the people that are of my ethnicity or my class, my education or my family, those closest to me or those who can repay me. It's a restricting, it's a restructuring, it's a reinterpretation of Scripture so that I can meet its demands if I restrict it down. It's a salad bar theologizing. Well, I'm going to love this person, not that person. I'm going to love this person, not that person. Let me tell you, it's a form of heresy when we take certain words of Jesus and we'll obey them and not others. It's kind of like a recipe. A recipe, if you're an accomplished cook... You feel at liberty to change ingredients. I don't like so much of this one. and I think I'm going to add a little more to this. Well, when we look at God's word, the Pharisees looked at it like a recipe. Well, I'm going to obey this, but I'm not going to obey this. And we don't want to fall into the same trap. It really displays an inauthentic faith. So this is what Jesus is criticizing. And I think we can do the same thing. We'll follow some things, but we won't follow others. It's, again, that speed limit. If I'm in a hurry, I get to break it. If I'm not in a hurry, I'll obey it. We don't take that approach to God's word. Okay, Jesus contrasts with that, and he says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Love your enemies, he says. Now, he's not saying don't love your neighbor. He's saying, yeah, love your neighbor and everyone up to and including the enemy. In other words, the Christian exercises an indiscriminate love. That, that it includes even the enemies. This is a greater righteousness of the kingdom that we love differently than the world loves. It's an indiscriminate love. In fact, you notice in the text, it's, he says, you shall love, or you heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. He goes plural. Why? Well, most scholars think that he's speaking about not just the traditional enemy, but all kinds of people with whom you have enmity. So it may be a person at work who's lied about you. It may be a spouse. It may be someone who spoke evil against you. It may be somebody that doesn't appreciate you, or has failed to honor you. It can be a host of people. It can be the one sitting next to you in this room. It can be someone at work in the community. It can be your father. Perhaps some of you just, just hate your father. He could be an enemy to you. But we're called to love without calculation. We're called to love without discrimination. We're called to love even our enemy. Now, for the person here who's not a Christian, uh, the Sermon on the Mount might be admired. You might attempt some things. This won't. The non-Christian cannot love indiscriminately. It's not that the non-Christian can't love. They can. They can love and they can do good, but they can't do it indiscriminately. They tend to do it based upon the response of the person. Think about who you love and who you don't love. Why do you love some and why do you not love others? Is it not often rooted in what they can do or how they respond to you? I mean, this is the weakness of a worldly love. It's governed by the perceived or the responses of other people. That's how our love is governed. In fact, one a uh, southern author of a previous generation wrote, in loving his friends, a man may, in a certain sense, still be loving only himself, a kind of expanded selfishness. That's the kind of love many people have. But, but Jesus is calling the Christian to love without discrimination. It's not, it's not an emotion you're waiting to feel. It's a command that you, by choice, follow. So how wide, to the Christian here, how wide is your love given? And does your love rise and fall on the attitudes that you have for the people that you're attempting to love? And what about your marriage? Look in your marriage. How would that love be defined? Would it be a wide love? Would it be an indiscriminate love to your spouse? Or would it be subject to the behavior of the other? This is a challenging passage. Why would he give us something so demanding? Why would he include such a a strong command? It's, It's risky. I know some of you may want to follow this, but it seems dangerous to love your enemy. They'll take advantage of you. They'll think you're condoning their behavior. Why would you do this? Well, Jesus gives us two reasons here, and you see it right in verse 45. He wants to give us reasons. He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, you loving your enemy. So Jesus has clarified for us what it means to love your enemy. He's clarified it. Now he gives us reasons. He says, so that you're sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, when you love without discrimination, you display your adoption. You reveal your sonship. Now now hear me clearly. Loving your enemy doesn't earn you the right to be a son. It doesn't doesn't make you a son. Remember, to be a son or to be a daughter is born out of you coming to terms with your own sinfulness and brokenness and appealing to God by faith for Jesus Christ to save you. That's what makes us sons and daughters. It's a move of faith, recognizing that we need to be delivered from ourselves and our sin. We turn to God by faith and we say, God, forgive us. Thank you for Jesus. He's taken my sin. He's given me his righteousness. Now you're a son. Loving your enemy is is flowing out of that. So the outworking of your sonship is that you love other people. And here's why. Because as you love indiscriminately like God does, you mirror God. That's his point. When he says in the second half of 45, he says, For he makes, and get this, n- note the, the pronoun there, For he makes his son, S-U-N, it's his. He owns it because he created it. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. In other words, as we love indiscriminately, in other words, widely, deeply, even for our enemies, we are looking at God our Father. We're displaying our sonship because he has sent his reign. He has caused his son to shine. And so we look like him. This is a perfect love. And th- I think this is what he's getting at when he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I don't think he's asking for a, a moral perfection because in chapter six, he's going to remind us that we need to confess our sins. But I think God's love is a perfect love because it is not just discriminated to certain types, but it's indiscriminate. And so Jesus is saying, when you love your enemy, you are looking like your father. You love like God, you don't love like the world. I think that's what he's saying. But then the second reason Jesus gives us is that it's about a membership in the kingdom. When you love indiscriminately, when you love widely, when you love deeply, when you love dangerously, you're revealing that you're part of another kingdom. You're part of another world. You're a different world. And you look that way. In this world that loves so discriminately. And you see that, look in 46. He says this, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, you guys know what a tax collector is. A tax collector is a man who is appointed by Rome, and he would have a certain area, and he would collect taxes. And he had to furnish a certain amount of money back to the Roman government to fund their armies. He was hated. He was a Jew, hated by Jews. And, and the whole system just bred, really, extortion and bribery and overcharging because he would have to charge taxes to give to the Roman government, but anything that he charged over what he was supposed to, he would keep. So the inclination was always to overcharge so that you'd line your own pockets with the money of your brothers. They were hated. They were destined for the fires of hell in the minds of the Jew. And Jesus is saying, but the tax collector, the most wicked guy around, he can still love his kids. He still likes to give good things to his family. He's still nice to be around if you're his friend. Gentiles, they can exchange pleasantries. They can have people over. I mean, they're, they're very nice people to their own people. He's saying, but what are you doing more than others? It displays membership in the kingdom. You reveal yourself to be of a different order when you love this way. You know, there was a, um, an accusation made to the American church by an Islamic scholar, Saeed Kuteb, and he said that the American church is guilty of grotesque schizophrenia. And what he said was, that they have a faith in a white building with a white picket fence that never seems to make it out into the real world. In other words, this privatization of our faith, but it doesn't impact the public life in which we live, that there is this schizophrenia within the American church. Now, ironically, he said that in the 40s. What would he say now? In other words, you say you believe this, but you live this. You're taught to love your enemies, but you treat your enemies like everybody else does, just like the tax collector and the Gentile. It was a a damning accusation. That's the issue. Look with me. He says, what more are you doing than others to display this membership? What more are you doing? The vitality of our Christian faith is not simply evidenced in going to church and reading the Bible and liking sermons. The vitality of our Christian faith is exercised in the ability to love others that others don't love and to love those who have hurt us, love those who have come against us. Ridiculed, mocked, our ability to love those is what distinguishes us as of another world. Matthew Henry wrote these words. He's the uh, British pastor of the 18th century. He says, Christianity is more than humanity. It's a serious question and one which we should frequently put to ourselves. What do we do more than others? What excelling thing do we do? We know more than others. We talk more of the things of God than others. We profess and have promised more than others. God has done more for us and therefore justly expects more from us than others. The glory of God is more concerned in us than others. But what do we do more than others? Are we different than the world? So Jesus has given us, he has clarified for us, that Christian loves indiscriminately, not selectively. And he has given us reasons. It, It reveals sonship and membership. But now he teaches us ways in which we can do more than others. How do we love indiscriminately? Well, he tells us in here when he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In other words, the prayer for those who persecute you is describing how to love your enemies, to pray. In other words, praying for those with whom you have enmity is an expression of love. It's a way to love them. So you have, you're at odds with somebody, your spouse, your child, your parent, someone in this church, someone outside the church. See, the Christian is to expect opposition from the outside, and the Christian is to expect conflict from the inside. And so how do you handle that? You turn to pray for them. You pray, just like Jesus prayed. Do you remember when Jesus was being crucified, that prayer that he uttered, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. But what's interesting is he prayed that prayer, and at least in in the tense used in the Greek language, it was a continuous prayer. He didn't pray it once. In other words, when they were nailing, when they were pounding the nails, he's saying, Father, forgive them. When they're mocking and jeering him, Father, forgive them. While he's hanging their suffering, Father, forgive them. He's praying for those who who are persecuting him. Stephen, being stoned. He prayed the same prayer, Father, forgive them. You don't die with one stone. You, you get hit 50, 60, 100 times. Some graze off you. Some hit your knee. A, knee. a stone to the knee doesn't kill you. It hurts. He's saying, Father, forgive them. As the stones are falling upon him, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. We are a people who are praying to pray for those who are persecuting us or who, with whom we are at enmity or struggling that it's a continual prayer, but it has staggering results in the sense that it doesn't just express love, it increases your love for them. You cannot continue to hate a person that you pray for. You can't do it. You're either going to stop praying or you're going to stop hating. When I'm in conflict with people, I pray for them diligently. I I remember Carol and I were um, building a house back when we lived in Maryland before going overseas. and may have shared this a long time ago, I forget, but Anyways, we're having this house built, and, and the guy next to us, I didn't realize at the time, but we are finding out all these little uh, cardboard things were nailed to the house, like stop this building, and all these nasty things. I'm thinking, who's taking an issue with us? We haven't even moved in yet. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, this is so weird. So we move in and find out it's the neighbor that was really angry at us because the house, I guess, blocked his view to a creek. And I tried to go over there and explain, you know, I wasn't the architect laying out the houses and everything but and and just really angry and then I start getting self righteous right because what did I do right I start getting all mad because we just bought the house I mean and 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 I start realizing I got to pray because I'm really getting to the point of I'm beginning to hate this guy and uh don't let that shock you uh you should see my prayer list uh I'm kidding uh Uh, I began praying for the guy and praying for the guy. And uh, he he was really cold to me. And uh, in time, though, he started warming up a little bit. And then I finally told him I've been praying for him. And uh, I invited him to start praying with me. And he started praying with me. Once a week, we'd pray. And I prayed with this guy all the way until he moved to go overseas. But prayer is effective both at decreasing your anger, but also that God answers it in reconciling people, that we're to pray for them. That's how we love more than others. We pray for them. Nobody else prays for their enemy. They want their enemy destroyed. We want our enemy bettered. We pray for them. We pray. Who right now do you struggle with? Is it your spouse? Is it somebody in the community? Is it the Republican Party? Is it the Democratic Party? Who do you most struggle with? Is it the president? Have you prayed for them? Have you lifted them up? Have you asked for them? Or have you asked God? Remember now, too, we don't pray about them. We pray for them. Have we asked God to reveal his glory to them? Have we asked God to encourage them and to better them? Have we asked God to reveal our own sin to us? That's what I pray first. God, I know I've done something wrong. Reveal it to me, that I can repent of it. Are we praying for their their seeing their mortality? Maybe they're a non-believer. God, help them to see that their life is going to be brief. Help them to see that you're a judge in God. Help them to see that you're a gracious God. We're called to pray for these people. But, but secondly, the second way that we can demonstrate more than others is by blessing them, by doing acts of service to them. In, in, this is in Matthew, of course, we're reading. In, the, in Luke's gospel, the parallel passage, he says this. He says, I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Do acts of service to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This is otherworldly stuff. To act with kindness, God sends rain and he sends his son. Those are practical, helpful things. Can we not do practical acts of kindness for others? Is not the parable of the Good Samaritan a perfect example of this? Everybody passes by the guy, and the Samaritan comes and binds up his wounds, takes him to an inn, pays for the inn, comes back and checks on him. What practical acts So the people that you have struggled with right now, what can you do to serve them with acts of kindness? How can you better their life by your sacrifice? It's a beautiful display of the gospel. Paul says in Romans chapter twelve twenty, it says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, what do you do with your enemies? You don't serve them. You rejoice in their downfall. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. We of this other world, we pray for them and we serve them. We also bless them. So if they criticize you, you don't return the favor. If they speak ill of you, you speak positively, legitimately and truthfully, not making stuff up. But you want to seek to speak right and good and holy things. Peter says this. He says, do not (coughs) repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. God has called you out of this world to be otherworldly. So that when people criticize your name, you are either silent or encouraging to them. Maybe it's offering forgiveness. Maybe it's speaking something helpful to them. It may be sharing the gospel to them. But Jesus has been very clear here. He clarifies that the Christian loves with an with a, a non-discriminatory bent. It's an indiscriminate love for even your enemy. And, and then he gives us reasons. He revealed to you your sonship and your membership. And then he gives us ways. You can pray for people. You can do acts of kindness for people. You can say things of upbuilding nature to people. That's, I think, what he's calling us to do. Now, right now, I can't imagine what you're thinking. But let me guess. I think you're probably thinking, some of you may be taking a casual attitude to this. You're kind of thinking, well, yeah, yeah, I was hoping to hear something different than that. But, you know, you're kind of just casual to the whole thing, and you're not really feeling a degree of conviction or comfort. and You're just kind of indifferent to it. Well, let me just warn you, if you feel indifferent to this text... Please, please take that as a sign of spiritual sickness. To be indifferent to the word of God is a spiritual sickness. It's it's To be indifferent to something that God has said is important is a sign. And I would ask you, if you claim the title Christian and you're indifferent, if a child of God is indifferent to the word of God, then he has to go back and make sure he's a child of God. So I would want you to make sure that you, in fact, are a Christian. Uh, If you're not casual, maybe you're comfortable with it. Maybe you say, no, Tom, I think I've got this down. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty well with this. I'm really loving my enemies, and I'm doing great with it. Well, then just do me two things. First, ask your wife if you're really loving your enemy. Or ask your child, or if you're not married, ask a friend. And then if you are walking in this, then praise God for his grace in your life. Thank him. I I want us all to be able to say, yes, I'm striving to love my enemy. So rejoice over that. But for the bulk of us, I think we sit in the convicted bucket. Now, conviction is that sense of, you know, you're kind of laid bare, and and you you have this sense of, wow, I, I have all kinds of enemies. I mean, folks, I have enemies that I've been praying for. we all have these, and and if you haven't been praying for them, if you haven't been acting to serve them, then then conviction, I want you to know, is a good thing. Conviction is evidence of God's Spirit revealing to you areas of life that he is seeking to sanctify. See, the Word of God convicts, and that's a healthy thing for us. The Word of God's like a mirror. It kind of shows you what you're really like. So one time on an hour on a date, and I was looking pretty good. So I thought, we've been out all night, had a nice dinner. I felt really good about myself. I happened to look in the mirror. There's a piece of tomato in my mustache. And I realized I wasn't looking as good as I thought I was looking. But the mirror revealed to me something that my darling wife didn't tell me, but that, uh, that it revealed to me something I couldn't see. And the Word of God reveals to us things about ourselves as it's been preached that you're like, I haven't done this. And the conviction comes on. That's good. The word of God's like a hammer, just bending us towards a Christ-likeness. That's the value of a Sunday morning, is you hear the word broken, and you walk away saying, God, give me grace to walk in this. It's a good thing. But conviction in itself, if it just pulls up and remains, can lead to self-pity and self-condemnation. Conviction has to lead to confession. And confession is when we verbalize to God, God, I'm sorry. I have not walked in this. I have ignored this. I haven't loved my enemies. Would you please forgive me? And perhaps you need to confess to others with whom you have had anger and you haven't reconciled. To give verbal confession to it. You know, David said, when I remained silent, my bones wasted away. But confession brings the f- freshness of God's forgiveness. It washes us clean. When we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So people don't remain in a position of conviction, but let it move to confession. And then last, call to God for grace. Call upon God. If you try to walk this out in your own steam, you are just you are bound to be discouraged and disillusioned. Call to God for grace. The first thing I would call to him for is, God, show me the cross. Show me that I was an enemy to you. That, that I have committed sins that you have cleansed, and I have failed that you have forgiven, and my sins are unmeasurable, but your grace is unfathomable. And, and ask God to remind you, I've been an enemy to you, and you've reconciled me to the cross. You've reconciled me through the cross to yourself. Passage that Charles read, and I'm just going to be part of it. Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Every Christian here has a pedigree of sin and brokenness and darkness. We've all been enemies to God. And thank you that he has given us the cross that now we can sit at his table with well, the people with whom you have enmity. They're no different than you are. You've been reconciled. Perhaps they haven't. We can love them. The cross gives you the power. The gospel gives you power. I can love them because I've been reconciled. I've been redeemed. I'm a citizen of a different kingdom. I can do more than others. But then secondly, call out to God for the spirit. The spirit of God is that is God's gift to us of renovating our lives. That we ask for the spirit to come inside of us and to help move us to follow The words that God has given to us. The Spirit gives new life. And and Luke touched on this last week when he said that we've been born again with an imperishable seed. The gospel has changed us. Our insides have been changed. Now filled with the Spirit. Now we can move out and truly love our enemy by his power, not in our own steam. So every one of us here, Uh, I can say with a degree of confidence this applies to. Let's now turn for a few minutes in prayer um, asking God for grace that this word might become our word for this week as we walk in faith and then Ray's going to close us in a few minutes of prayer.